Hello, I'm Charlotte Hawkins and welcome to Last Past and Blast. Each week we delve into the musical lives and memories of a different guest and each guest will choose three pieces of music. Their last, which is the latest piece of classical music they've been listening to. Their past, a significant piece of classical music from their life and a blast, their wildcard. So keep an ear out for guilty pleasures with that one. Together we'll explore the way music has shaped their lives and what it means to them. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with pianist, composer and activist Chloe Flower. We talked about how the music she creates is so different she had to invent a whole new genre to describe it, what it was like stealing the show performing with Cardi B at the Grammys and why she can never listen to music to relax. Here's the episode. Chloe, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. It is brilliant to speak to you all the way from New York. Thanks ever so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I love this. Now, your music is absolutely mesmerizing. I love it. And what I'm fascinated by is you're a classically trained musician, but actually, you know, you've been in the the pop world. You do all sorts of different kind of music at the same time. So how do you describe yourself now? It was very difficult for me, even since when I first started working on classical crossover type music and I first experimented, that was, I think 1994 was the first time I had seen Vanessa May and uh, her CD. And um, since then I, I wanted to combine sounds, but it wasn't always the same sound. So it wasn't always EDM, it wasn't always hip hop, it wasn't necessarily R&B, sometimes it was pop sounding, sometimes it was solo. And so because I would describe it to people like, oh yeah, it's a little bit of classical, but you know, sometimes I have a hip hop beat, sometimes there's an 808, sometimes there's a trap, and it was just so hard to categorize. So like I recently just came up with a genre, I was like, I'm just gonna call myself popsicle, which is popular classical, classical as a term that everyone likes to use to describe like all instrumental music <laughs> um, from 20th century prior. But yeah, and I just wanted to create a genre that where I can just say popsicle, and everyone knows what I'm talking about. It's instrumental music with drums and modern sounds in a pop song format. I love the fact that there wasn't even a category to put your music in, that you have had to create something new to be able to describe what you're doing to people. I mean, did you set out thinking, I want to do something really different. How, how did you end up making that change when you started off in classical? That was all your training was, or was it just that, you know, you were listening to so many different types of music that you wanted to go down that route? I think for me growing up, I was lucky to like be exposed to pop culture early on. So when I would prepare for concerts, I would often not just listen to pianists, like other classical pianists on video, but I would watch like Destiny's Child video, like Beyonce videos actually. And um, I would watch figure skating. I remember I used to always love watching, searching the 1994 Winter Olympics for figure skating. Like I loved performance, like the element of performance. And I loved certain pop music and the, the modern sound. I just knew that the sound that I had already heard that existed, which is classical crossover, I wasn't, didn't resonate with me personally. I wanted to create a sound with with drums that like each drum is like an instrument like in an orchestra so every drum every every um uh hi-hat has like a has like a purpose like like a violin in, in an orchestra so that's kind of how it started it didn't necessarily um i wasn't like out to create a new genre it just kind of happened organically i guess <laughs> and what 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 have your parents made of it you know were they a big influence on you musically because you put up a, um, a video on instagram didn't you where you sort of said back in 1994 this is the music that my parents wanted me to play and it was mozart it was very traditional so how was that journey been for them as well yeah no my parents of course they love classical music i mean they truly love it when they listen to it they're just like in a meditative state and uh i think that they always wanted me to be uh, a classical musician because they just appreciate classical music so much but they've been they're such cool parents in a way like so non-traditional asian stereotype that they allow me to do what i want because i think they trust that like i'm not going to do something i never had to do anything um that i didn't believe in so, you know, it took me a long time to end up at, at Sony Masterworks. I had a lot of other um, offers, but, you know, they were like, you have to play this kind of music because this is what sells. And it's like, but you don't know what sells. You don't know if my music will sell just because you haven't heard it before. 
And so my parents supported that kind of like doing something different um, and not necessarily just like following whatever sells. And you mentioned earlier the performance side of things and how important that is to you. And for anybody listening to this who hasn't seen you in action, I urge them to go and watch you right now. What if it will actually watch you when the podcast is finished, I should say, shouldn't I? To see you because I, you just throw yourself into it. You've got so much sassiness, so much attitude. And I saw that performance at the Grammys with Cardi B where you literally stole the show. I mean, for you, how, how big an element is the performance side of it? It's huge. You know, as a classical, anyone who understands um, classical piano, specifically piano, understands that we have been taught since the very beginning of our first lesson, when we're on stage performing, you ignore the audience. The audience doesn't exist. They black them out. You're in your zone. In fact, the piano doesn't even face the audience. It faces, you know, the side stage. So doing a performance like Cardi's performance and even all the other prior performances that I had done way before Cardi's performance at the Grammys, it required almost like learning a new instrument. For me, I felt like I was learning something new. All of us, my first showcase in 2010 with Babyface, I'll never forget it. They gave me my piano. I went to sound check and I was so excited. Wasn't really that nervous because, you know, the music was easier because it's like crossover in a way, like it has the drums. And so there's like more space and they're shorter. And then they gave me a microphone and they're like, where do you want your microphone? And I was like, what microphone? I'm not a singer. And they're like, you're going to have to talk and like engage with the audience. So where do you want your microphone? And I was like, what? Like I had no concept of engaging with an audience verbally. So <laughs> that was really crazy. And so, you know, it was like that Cardi B thing was like really, really scary, but it was so cool for the first time. Like Cardi's team, Tanisha Scott, the creative director was like, I asked her at dress rehearsal. I was like, the camera's really close to my face. You know, like I don't understand live television. I certainly don't understand, like, you know, I'm not a pop artist. So like, do I look at the camera? And she was like, if you feel like it, you know, if it's, if he's there, if it feels organic, do it. If not, then whatever. And so it was not rehearsed in any way. Like it was just, it just happened, you know? So after the performance, I was so embarrassed because I was like, I looked at the camera so hard and I, I don't know what I was doing. You stared that camera down. I absolutely loved it. But you know what? I don't know how you did it because you were barely looking at the piano, at the notes you were playing. It was all about kind of just creating this incredible atmosphere for those people who were watching. And that's why I think I honestly don't know how you did that. And especially saying, hearing what you say there, where for you, that was a, a new side of it to have that big performance element in there. Yeah, because just like golf, you know, you're a soloist on stage by yourself and it's a it's a mental game as much as it is technique, you know, like I always say, like I learn techniques so that I can express my feelings, my emotions, my artistry without having to worry about the notes. And I think like with, you know, just two notes like E flat and E natural for that mix, that mix is E flat and E natural. I could look at the camera and not necessarily have to look down the whole time. But so it's just kind of like, you're here. Let me ice grill you. <laughs> <laughs> and were you surprised by the reaction to that? Because a lot of people then paid attention, didn't they? A lot of people, I guess, wanted to hear more of your music because of that performance. Definitely. I think that um, my biggest problem, why I was so frustrated and why I created Popsicle, this new genre, is because, number one, I couldn't, you know, early, as we said earlier, I couldn't really explain it in one word, like Popsicle. But um, I felt like uh, finally... I had an opportunity to show that instrumental music doesn't have to be looked at in a very specific way, like boring, or it can be cool, it can be flashy, it can be fun, and it can be about a performance. It's not necessarily just this, but down here, you can see my keys, I have keys down here. Um, it's not just that, but it's also, there can be a, a multi-dimensional aspect to being an instrumentalist, even though you're not singing or speaking. Um, and the Grammy stage gave me an opportunity to do that. and. Um, and when the audience reacted, then it was, it wasn't until then that other than Sony, cause I signed with Sony before the Grammys, but <laughs> everyone else, you know, they didn't come along until after everybody else liked it. So that was a huge moment for, I think for all instrumentalists everywhere. Have you ever faced any criticism from the classical music traditionalists who are 
maybe suspicious about what you're doing or don't like how you're treating classical music? Because there are some people, aren't there, who are who are very protective of it, who who want it performed in its traditional way and, and don't like to think of it being used in other forms. Yeah, definitely, you know, in, in every, um, anytime you're doing something new, I think that you'll always have people who are speculative and, and sometimes a little bit nasty. They can get re- very opinionated. Um, and that's their opinion. And it doesn't, it doesn't really um, affect me because I'm, I'm kind of used to like people being like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is weird or or being angry. So I think someone once told me um, that they burned their piano when like because like I did a cover and I was like, oh, my God, you should have donated it. You know, it's like, whatever. you know, like I don't really I'm not like traumatized by that, that kind of negativity, because I think I expect that whenever you're doing something different, um, people could react like in a negative way but you know i i I don't think that 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 would never stop me i feel like i i at this point i'm in my mid-30s now so i feel like at this point i believe in my sound and i believe in my ears so like you know i feel like if i like it like you know other people could like it too but i love the fact that you know, a, a lot of the times I'm really passionate about wanting the younger generation to listen to classical music, you know, in, in whatever form it is, just making sure that it's not a type of music that dies out, that we breathe fresh life into it, we reinvigorate it. So it will, you know, carry on for generations and generations. And that's something that you're doing absolutely brilliantly. Have you heard from people who say to you, that because of you, they now listen to more classical music, because I guess there are those who are going to listen to to your music because of its links with pop music and whatever different types of music. But have you heard that people listen to more classical music as well because of it? Definitely, definitely. That was one of the, the best things that came out of that performance as well. Is, is part of the reason I am so strong about my sound and what, what I believe my music should sound like is because... Um, I think that in order for kids to resonate with it, whether they're little kids or parents or even, you know, people my age or even, you know, in high school, college, uh, whatever age, there has to be kind of like a package associated because you don't hear classical music like that on the radio. You basically hear most classical music in movies. And I think that's why like songs like the Moonlight Sonata and um, and Claire de Lune are so popular because you hear them so much in film. And so it's just really about accessibility to me. That's why I like to always incorporate a little bit of classical because I feel like like the obscure classical, not like the Moonlight Sonata, but something that they may not have ever heard before. And like the Beethoven third piano concerto and get what you get. You may not have heard that before, but then the next time you hear something like that in classical music, you might get excited because it's really about the theme. When you hear the theme over and over again, you start to, you like it better. And so I think that once people listen to my music, they can hear my sound and they can also be like, oh, that's an interesting song. Should I hear the original or should I hear another version? And then it kind of educates younger kids about what music can actually do the potential and how, how far back uh, music goes. Because popular music, really, the definition, I think, started in like the 50s or something, you know, so Western art music goes back, you know, hundreds of years, so. I'm just thinking about when you were talking about your single, because I saw the video where you were on the rooftop and you had that amazing dress on. And again, like the amazing dress that you had for the Grammys as well. I mean, is that a big part of it? Because it's very sort of flamboyant. It's very much you're there saying, here I am, I'm, I'm making a statement. Does that help you with the performance? You know, how, how does that make you feel? Is it is it bringing a, a sort of, um, you know, an attention to it that it wouldn't otherwise get? Definitely, definitely. Fashion has always been a big part of my performance, even before I went to college. Like when I went to piano lessons, I was really like, I have, like, you know, I was at Manhattan School of Music and I remember I would like have to pick my outfit and like be dressed really amazing because I don't get to speak as an instrumentalist. So like, I don't get to say anything. So part of the sound is my speaking, but also the look. Because I can, you know, if I am playing like a, like I did this Meek Mill cover, um, one of his songs, he asked me, he was like, do glow up, do glow up. And when I heard the song, I was like, oh, I can't wear a dress to this. So I wore lace up red leather pants because I was like, that goes better. So I really love to match my fashion with the sound because I feel like it's now we're in a, a very um, visual world. And so I think having that element just gives it another dimension, gives it another um, layer that makes it more interesting. So performance-wise, definitely. I think it's brilliant. And the fact is it makes it so eye-catching. It makes it stand out for the audience as well. Again, 
I love that aspect of it. I wanted to talk to you about your collaborations because you've you've kind of collaborated and worked with with so many diverse people, haven't you? You know, you've mentioned Babyface, Naz, Celine Dion. You know, how do you how do you work out who you're going to work with and what form that's going to take? Because I know that, you know, it's been either musically or, or you're producing as well, aren't you? Yeah, you know, there are very many female producers in our industry, uh, especially uh, like Asian female producers, you know, and in classical music, I think it's hard to find people who like really appreciate classical music and pop culture and pop. And so I feel that I just had an, a competitive advantage in that one way when it comes to creating a sound, because I just have listened to hip hop and drums so much my whole life. So when I'm doing all these different sounds, I'm never like, oh, I will collaborate with this artist because they're hip hop. I really look at the artist and what I can bring. You know, if I'm just doing chords, like session, I don't do session work because I'm like, you can hire somebody who needs the session job, right? I would only do like a feature or like production. So Celine, Johnny Mathis, Sway Lee, uh, Two Chains, all of those songs, I helped create the work. I, you know, the, produ- the main producer, like Michael and Babyface, they created, you know, the, the structure for me. And then after they sent me the files and I created... Um, you know, like strings and piano with within that framework. You know, working with Babyface, you know, you end up just working with like the best people. So I, I have to really thank him for that. And you taught yourself pretty much then the producing side of it because of that. Yeah. So my nickname at the studio was Clo Tools because I'm such a perfectionist <laughs> in a way that I try to like not be such a perfectionist because it's time consuming. But they call me Clo Tools because there was a moment when I was recording. Deepak Chopra is on my album as well. And when we were engineering his vocals, I was like, no, move it over a little, move it over a little because it's over piano. And I was like, should I just do it? Like, how do I do it? And so I sat down and then I took all these, watched all these YouTube tutorials on how to use Logic and how to use Pro Tools because it just ended up that, you know, I had to do everything myself because, you know, string arrangements and this kind of sound is just more complicated than copy paste everything is moving like this. All the chords are always moving. The rhythms are always moving. That's how you keep it interesting without a vocal line. So I had to really teach myself and I can thank YouTube for that. All those YouTube tutorials, whenever I had a question, I would be like, search on YouTube and there was always an answer. Very useful. There we go. If people want to teach themselves music producing, then that's where they should start by the sounds of it. Helps if you're working with Babyface as well, I guess, doesn't it? I'm going to talk to you about your three musical choices in just a moment. Your last, your past and your blast. But I just wanted to ask you about when you listen to music, how much is listening to music a part of your life? It's so funny that you asked me that. No one's ever asked me that question before. Um, And I was always glad no one asked me that question. (laughs) So because it's like it's weird. It's very counterintuitive. But um, you know, I don't really um, listen to music like that. Whenever I'm listening, like when I'm driving it on a road trip in a car, I never just like listen to music. I don't find it as relaxing. I love to paint and draw when I'm trying to relax sometimes. But for music, like I love music and I love listening to it, but I'm constantly like studying it. So when I have it on in the background, it feels sometimes like work. I'll be like, oh, wait, I like that chord progression. Oh, wait, what? what is that? What is that sound? What is that? What is that synth? And then I'll be like looking for synth sounds. And so, you know, I spend my whole day, you know, in the studio working on music. So sometimes I just like um, quiet. <laughs> I find it really interesting because all the musicians I speak to, and I ask that question a lot because I love to listen to music, to relax, to escape, you know, it takes me away from it, especially classical music. It's blissful from that point of view. And whenever I ask that question to musician, that's, the most common answer I get that actually it's really difficult for you to listen to music and relax, which actually I I feel is really sad because with you creating such amazing music that's helping other people, but for you, it's much more of a, an interactive process, isn't it? You're always analyzing whatever you're hearing. Definitely. It's so funny that you get that answer. That makes me feel a little bit better. I never go to like live concerts either. Like I very rarely go to live concerts unless they're classical. Yeah, no, that's so funny that you get that answer. Wow, I'm so surprised. It's just, it's, yeah, it's just, it's like when you're in classical music, specifically classical music and you're writing and you're even just not even a writer, you're just learning what's out there already. Like if you're learning, let's say Beethoven Sonata, um, that in itself is so meditative and so relaxing. Like when I'm practicing, obviously it's very hard, but I used to practice like 12, 14 hours a day because I used to know that 
probably half of those hours I was like lit, like just like enjoying the music and like meditating and enjoying. And then the other half is the real work. (laughs) So that is a crazy amount of time you would spend practicing 12 to 14 hours a day. I mean, I know you say that, you know, for you, you'd enjoy that process or I guess a big chunk of that process, but that's still a big sacrifice, isn't it? out of your life to spend that amount of time? Yeah, I did that mostly when I was, the practicing part, I did that mostly when I was 12. When I first, I was really behind in conservatory because I took piano lessons since I was two, but at a local level. So I didn't start taking serious piano lessons until I was 12 uh, with at a conservatory level, professional level. And so that's old in classical music here. That's like way behind. So my teacher, he was like, if you're going to you know, get into Manhattan School of Music pre-college, you're going to have to like put in the work and you're gonna and my hands are like tiny I can barely reach a nine so everything is just a little bit takes a little bit longer for me anyways because of my hand size but yeah I just had to really catch up and learn the repertoire and so I you know and I spend longer hours than that when I'm producing I'll spend 20 hours straight working I won't drink water so that I don't have to take a break to pee so you deprive yourself of water so you can spend more time working That's quite something. So from an early age then, when did you know that you wanted to, you know, the piano is for you, that that's what you wanted to do? Because obviously by the age of 12, then you decided that you wanted to put the work in to be able to get to that level. I I think I always knew, you know, I don't think there was, I can't even remember a time when I thought I wanted to do something else. I was so lucky to have um, my parents who who allowed me the ability to choose my career and also not have to supplement it with work. They were always supporting me. So all I had to do was practice. And I think knowing that and starting late was really helpful. I think I, I wasn't like jaded or, or um, I didn't take it for granted. I was new to the, to the conservatory game at 12 where other people my age had been there since they were six. So I, I knew there's nothing else in the world I can do for 14 hours. I just, you know, like, it's like, I can't remember if I, if I thought about that after, I didn't think it just happened. I just knew. I couldn't do any other job for 14 hours a day. But you know what? That's a great test, isn't it? If you're saying, you know, like if you went to schools and you're saying to people, what do you want to do for a career? What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Can you do that for 14 hours a day? Because if the answer is yes, then you're on the right lines, aren't you? Yeah, it's rational, right? <laughs> it's good. I know. I like that. I like that test. How to find out whether you're really dedicated or not. <laughs> Would you give up water to do that? (laughs) Let's turn now to your musical choices then, starting off with your last. So this is the latest piece of classical music that you've been enjoying listening to. Which one have you picked for this? So I have been, like I said earlier, you know, I'm not limited to piano music when it comes to my inspiration. So I've been listening to a very specific recording of Sibelius's violin concerto. I think it was his only violin concerto in D minor. D minor and C minor are my like two favorite keys. It was so inspiring and I've been playing it for everyone. So I've been listening to that and watching that on YouTube like a lot in the last week. <laughs> so what is it about it then that you particularly enjoy? Well, other than just how beautiful it is, I love how um, how different it is as, like, as, as far as concertos go. Like it doesn't necessarily follow that exact A, B, A format and it moves so much and almost sometimes especially in the end of the, in the first movement, it almost sounds like jazzy. It almost sounds like ahead of his time. It almost sounds like pop in a way, like film, film-ish. And so I was always mesmerized by that. And just the way I, Sarah Chang's performance, I've seen other performances, but hers, the way that she moves and her transitions are just like so inspiring to me. And as a pianist who can't really do that with my instrument, um, I like to listen to that so that when I'm programming violins over there, I can try and do that in the same way that, you know, in that sound where it's just so like, so much soul. So I just love that performance. I feel like that that violin concerto has so much soul. And I kind of like the story behind it, how like everyone hated it at first. And he was like, I quit. It's like one of the most epic violin concertos ever written. Yeah. So it's a good job that he didn't in that case. And and for you, was it, obviously the, the piano has always been at the center of it, but did you ever think about playing any other instruments? Would you have been tempted to play the violin? 
Yeah, I, st- I played the violin and cello. I played cello for nine, ten years, and I played violin for a few years, and uh, I wanted to be a violinist because I felt like the violin was able to, like, translate my what I wanted to say. I felt like I had more control over the vibrato, you know, like everything like that, um, that the piano just doesn't do. I, I ended up, I was better at the piano. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very glad it was the piano that was the one that stood out because it is amazing to hear you in action. What about your past then, the choice of music from way back, one that's really resonated with you, one that's meant a lot to you? I definitely think that the most um, impactful classical piece so far in my life is Beethoven's Third Piano Concerto in C minor. The reason I say that is not because it's in my single and not because I really... um, It's not like when I hear it, like I'm like, oh my God, I actually like feel more when I hear the Sibelius. But my mom said that that was the concerto that made her realize I should be taking piano lessons or music lessons. Because before I could walk, when I was in the crib, she would play classical music all day in the background. And um, when that song would come on, she, I would like get up, I would recognize it and I would get up and start, yeah, like like I just love that dun, 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 I guess that, that theme. And I heard it and I loved it. And so she was like, and she always talked about that growing up. And she always was like playing different versions of that concerto around me. And so I think that was like, you know, that was like a pivotal moment because at that point I can't choose my profession, right? I can't choose uh, piano lessons my mom chose for me, but because of that. That's amazing though. So right for when you were really tiny, it obviously brought out this response in you. There was something that connected, wasn't there? Yeah, definitely. So my mom says, I don't really remember. but. <laughs> and it's part of one of your singles. How does it, how does it feel now when you hear it? Does it take you back to when you were younger? Does it kind of give you that feeling about it's a piece of music that's just been a part of you for so long? You know, I love Beethoven. He's one of my favorite composers. And yeah, when I hear that, I definitely reminds me of home because my parents played it so much. I think it was their favorite concerto um, now that I think about it. But uh, yeah, when I hear it, it's just, it's so epic. And it's so, and you know, at the end, the part I incorporated in Get What You Get, my first single with Sony, I feel like if Beethoven were alive, he would have added synth sounds or drums or beats like he might have done that that's why like I always say that to people when they're critical I'm like you know if Beethoven were alive Mozart were alive they're rock stars like I'm not so sure they wouldn't be experimenting this way too so um if they had the technology to do so so (laughs) (laughs) who knows what they would have created if they'd have been around today I think it's a good point though absolutely Let's turn now to your blast. Now, this is the piece of music. Might be a bit of a wild card. I mean, I don't quite know what we're going to get with you because you you listen to so many different types of music anyway, don't you? You're involved with so many types. What have you gone for? So one of my, when I'm not like writing or, you know, meditating or practicing, I love hardcore like trap music, EDM. So I often listen to a, like a lot of that type of music from that genre. So there's a song, Roll Up, and there's a bunch of, you know, DJs. They have like 12 different remixes with 12 other DJs. This is uh, Floss Astramas, his version with Bauer, another DJ and producer. They did a, a version of Roll Up that I love. And part of the reason I love this song is because it's EDM music and trap music like in the genre have uh, no very little vocals. So they kind of remind me of what I'm doing in the sense that they have to move in order to stay interesting because there's no vocal line. So there's arcs in EDM music that you don't necessarily see in a pop song. And it allows me to really hear the drums and hear what's happening and hear ideas and think of ideas without the distraction of a vocal. So I mm. listen to a lot of trap. Roll Up is so good, it's so fun. Like, makes me wanna jump rope because we're in quarantine so I can't <laughs> go to the gym. <laughs> Yeah. So that's the kind of one that would get you going. It would get you up and dancing, would it? Yeah. And I can study it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, yeah, killing two birds with one stone, isn't it? At the same time, from that 
point of view. And you mentioned that being in quarantine, obviously it's a strange time at the moment. How have things been? Because, you know, it's it's been locked down. People have been forced to spend a lot more time in their homes, get used to a really different routine. How have you found it? Um, for me, because I'm, you know, the nature of, of being a pianist is very solitary to begin with. Like I'm not in an orchestra, um, so I'm usually practicing alone and doing lessons alone. I'm constantly working, so uh, I feel like I've kind of been quarantined my whole life. Um, the difference is, you know, obviously with the pandemic, you know, everyone was at home. Everyone was quarantining here in New York. It got pretty bad here. And I live on the 63rd floor. It's all windows here. So and I live right right near the Brooklyn Bridge, which is where all the protests were happening. So they would come through and I would see them at my window. And because I had was home all the time, I would see them every day, all day. They always ended up right outside my apartment, thousands of people. That was the thing that was different about that was I was working on a different song and I just couldn't get into it. With everything that was going on, what I could see, like I would just turn over here and I could see like thousands of protesters. and. I ended up just putting the song I was working on down and starting a completely new one and writing a new one. So I think in terms of impact, not just, a, you know, this is a huge civil rights movement, but it also has totally changed the trajectory of my music in such a short time. Like all of a sudden I'm writing my last single is a solo piano ballad that, you know, was a completely original, which I probably wouldn't have written had I not been experiencing that. So for you, it actually inspired a, a, maybe a complete change of direction then? It did. Yeah, definitely. I was on a completely, just at that time, song-wise, I was in a completely different uh, direction. I just, I called Sarah at my label, my A&R, and um, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to put this song down for a second and shelve it. I think I'm going to try something original for solo piano because I'm just not feeling that right now. And she was so supportive. You know, my label's amazing. They're so, so supportive and they're like, yeah, try and send it to us. And so that was actually my last single that I last released. Those protests have been have been going on around the world. A lot of people are hoping that there'll be a real change as a consequence that actually, you know, we will see more equality, more diversity. Do you think that now is the time for real change? Do you think that enough is going to happen as a consequence of, of everybody or, you know, a lot of people standing up and saying, enough is enough? Or, or do you sort of worry that actually f things will just go back to how they were before people might forget? You know, there's always that worry that people are going to forget because historically that's what's happened. You know, you have a situation. I went to Ferguson um, years ago and, you know, they had those, they had days of protests. I think maybe they were even a week long. Um, and then kind of everyone forgot, you know, like there wasn't like, there was no press there. I just went to a high school and did some music education programs. Um, uh, everything was boarded up, you know, everything around the high school was boarded up. But then, you know, people forgot. But I think in this case, because we were also going through a pandemic simultaneously, all of the businesses were shut down. Everybody was at home watching. It was like nobody was going to the office. Offices were closed. People weren't traveling. So we were kind of all forced to watch the cruelty over and over again. And I think as many days as we saw that George Floyd video, which is just so horrific, as a human, right, you you can't really forget that when you see it that many times. And I think now with, um, you know, just recently, um, you know, in the fall, like with the NBA, you know, refusing to, to perform, I say perform, to play, <laughs> um, real change is happening. I mean, you've never seen that before. You saw Colin Kaepernick take a knee and then he was suspended from the NFL. Things are changing and I think things are different. And I think now all of a sudden people are being held accountable. And once you start seeing people held accountable, you start to see change. I'm pretty optimistic that things are gonna are gonna be better. Let's hope so. And, and when you talk about change and, and wanting things to be better, you mentioned earlier that as an Asian female music producer, you're you know, you're in the minority. Um, what, what needs to happen, do you think, to encourage more diversity in music? And I guess in particular in classical music, you know, how can we make sure that it's open to everybody? Well, I think in order for it to 
really be open to everyone. It's not just making it accessible and putting on a pretty dress and getting kids excited about wanting to learn, creating that demand. It has to be, you know, just like the protests and the coronavirus worked together to create a real change. I think in order for, for music education to be really um, taken seriously, there has to be a demand. And then there has to be at like a state level implementation of music education in all public schools. And so there has to be access, just the basic access and then demand. And I, you know, that's my, I'm trying to create a demand by showing kids like, hey, you know, like you should want to learn an instrument or, you know, even if you're not talented, I think that's also another mistake that people make about learning an instrument. They're like, oh, I'm not talented, so I shouldn't do it at all. When there's so many, so many reasons why schools should have music, music education in their schools, just as important as math and science. So I think those two things together, coupled together, could hopefully make music a priority. But I think a lot of people are put off because they might think they might think they're not musical. They might think, you know, it's just not for them. It's interesting what you say about actually, you know, any, anyone can, do you think anyone can pick up an instrument or sit down at the piano and be able to create music? Absolutely. Because really what it is, is just you're exercising your brain in a way. Like, you know, it's like a gym class for your brain at school, right? I taught a couple piano lessons on my YouTube page using an iPad because, you know, not everyone has access to a keyboard or a piano. So you have that. And then when I went to Compton Unified, I partnered with Compton Unified School District in Los Angeles. And um, whenever I go there, I, I always make uh, room to speak about other areas in music that you can be a part of job-wise or just hobby-wise or intern-wise other than applied. So like, you know, there's like engineers, there's sound, there's producers, there's lighting, there's production, there's creative. There's so many different levels and different... Um, things that you can do within the, the space of music. And um, I don't know if people are necessarily where they think of classical music, piano or something. and They don't think of like engineering the back end. So I always talk about that. I think that that's also um, something that kids could get excited about, like music production. Have you found it hard during this latest few months because of everything that's going on, the fact that you couldn't do that performance element, the fact that you couldn't get out there in front of an audience? Yeah, I had a couple, um, a couple of concerts that were postponed and canceled um, uh, in the spring because of coronavirus. I was on the phone with my agency and I was like, you know, like people are getting laid off. And they're like, yeah, but like you also are laid off. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm laid off too. Like, cause I can't perform right now. You know, no one knew it in March, like how long this was gonna go. So definitely as a, I think they said recently, like, you know, almost like 70 or 80% of the music industry during coronavirus was unemployed or laid off. So I think, you know, it's hard, but I have this ability to create and record. I recorded half my album during quarantine, more than half my album during quarantine. So I feel lucky to have that ability, but definitely I miss the live performance. There's something about live performance that you just can't get on a Zoom. You know, it's like the sound or something. Even like when I performed at Disney Hall, like I hated that they mic'd my piano. And so I was like, don't mic my piano because it's like Disney Hall, you know, like there's something about just that acoustic, pure, unmiked sound that is um, amazing that I miss. Oh, OK. So that's interesting. So they were trying to sort of amplify the sound that was coming from the piano, but you wanted it to be in its natural state. Yeah, because I, well, the acoustics at Disney Hall are so good. But, you know, I'm playing with orchestra and piano and then Babyface came and did a, a, a song with me. We, he did Change the World. And they're like, you know, they're always mic'd, right, because they're playing singing the guitar, obviously. Um, and pop people always want to mic the inside of the piano and classical people, you know, always mic from above when they have to mic. And so, you know, that's always a struggle in live performance. The micing is always, you have to show up to sound check like 30 minutes early to argue with somebody about where you're micing. <laughs> do you get, do you get nervous still? How do you feel just before you're about to perform? Particularly if it's a situation where, you know, you were describing earlier that, performance at the Grammys, where it is something that's different for you, where it's, you know, they're asking you to sort of give it your all and give it the attitude. And it's not what you would usually do with your performance. I know that you do it differently now, but how, how does that feel beforehand? I mean, definitely at the Grammys, I was like, I came off that stage and I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. Like, what was I doing? Like he was there, I just stared at him, I ice grilled him. I don't even know why I looked at him so many times. Um, it's so, yeah, it, I was so nervous for that performance. Like as this, I heard Alicia Keys go and Cardi B 
and like I watched the thing the gate coming up and I was like why do I do this to myself why do I do this to myself and then I was like you know like I just served an academy award for that performance I was dying because it's live television and it's something completely different from any performance I've ever had like I would have loved to do like a practice performance of ice grilling the camera or like doing my normal thing because on Instagram you know you feel a bit protected like you're like doing this and then if you don't follow me you're probably not going to see it but like everybody's going to see me like doing this and like when do you see that so but it's not like I was I wasn't choreographed at all I was just like feeling it I guess and so um doing that for the first time was so nervous but I think as over time as I perform more and I feel like um people understand what I'm doing and they're accepting it and so gracious about it it becomes easier and easier but definitely like it was like like learning a new instrument I don't know how you kept a steady hand when you did that one with all of that going on (laughs) (laughs) can I ask you about the US elections coming up because I was looking on your your social media and I couldn't help but notice that you were talking earlier about doing a bit of drawing and one person that you were drawing was Joe Biden oh yeah you know oh I um I was just like it was like I think it was like a weekend and you know I don't think he was the Democratic nominee yet I'm not sure I don't remember um yeah, I just, I like, I like drawing, you know, I, I'm just like, my mom's a painter, she's amazing, so I, I watched her, um, my sister's an architect, so, you know, she's a drawer too, and uh, yeah, I just, I like drawing people, I was like, let me speak this into existence, I mean, my political affiliate, like, my political position is not, it's not ambiguous in any way, like, everybody knows, like, how I would vote coming up in November, um, I'm very, very proactive when it comes to encouraging people to vote, because I think, you know, as, as amazing as the, as the protests are for impact, we also need to vote. And um, and the elections are so important this year. So trying to kind of, on my Instagram, use that platform that I have, even if it's, you know, not as big as other people's, you know, just having, like Wisconsin, like a few thousand votes could could move Wisconsin. And, you know, like John, I think John Legend does a lot of uh, voting um, activism and, you know, his fans are big in Wisconsin. He could, he could, his his one post could swing swing that state and so i think you know when you talk about like those small numbers and what impact they have on the election everyone needs to vote what do you make of donald trump's presidency um i think that uh i'm obviously not a fan of donald trump i i didn't vote for him i i never thought that he was going to win in fact when i was um during the election i was talking with my management i was with uh, maverick at the time and during the election process, we were planning what I was going to wear when I performed at Hillary's inauguration. And when I left that meeting and got back, he had just lost Pennsylvania. And so, or one of those very important uh, swing states. And it was like a funeral in the house where I was. And I was like, what's happening? And everyone's like, oh my God. It was really disappointing. I think, um, I think that, uh, I think everything, not to sound like like too like spiritual, but I think everything happens for a reason. And I think because he was so terrible, um, it really forced us to to have this movement like Black Lives Matter, to have this movement, of, a civil rights movement again, because it was like, we're going down a spiral that, you know, we need to come out of before it becomes too late. So that's my two cents on Donald Trump. So kind of seizing, seizing on it being the right moment for change and for big change. Yeah, I think if he weren't that, if he weren't as bad as he as he is, you know, we might not have this kind of movement necessarily. You know, we might have not this kind of passion and, and outrage if we didn't have him in the presidency. So you mentioned using your profile, the platform that you have. I know something else that's important to you is is speaking out about slavery, speaking out about human trafficking, because I think for a lot of people in their everyday lives it's not something that they'd necessarily be aware is still going on in the world. Yeah, definitely. I was actually, that's how I ended up being so heavily involved in human trafficking. It was all the way back in 2006. I was performing in Asia. Um, and when I went to Cambodia, that was the first time I had learned about human trafficking. And I considered myself educated. I considered myself well-traveled. And I was so shocked that I didn't know anything about it. Um, so, you know, that was that year, 2006, when I came back to New York, that was like awareness campaign. I did like all these awareness campaigns, small events. I charged $20 and 
and donate all of the all of 100 percent of the proceeds um, to the Somali Mom Foundation, which is the or first organization I was working with on anti-human trafficking based out of Cambodia. And then we did a gala in New York. And, and then, you know, the awareness campaign really took off with social media, um, especially with Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore. They were very early on uh, Twitter. Um, support of the anti-human trafficking. And, and so now my position is more focused towards prevention through music education because I think that people are much more aware of it now. So I think it's much better to try and prevent it than, you know, it's, so, it's, it's easy. You can save a girl from a brothel, but, you know, how do you stop her from going back? And do you feel it's, it's a duty to, you know, to speak out to sort of help help prevent these things where you can, because there are those people, aren't there, that say, oh, you know, if a musician's talking about things left, right and centre, and, and and some people are critical, aren't they, and say, oh, they should stick to music, don't get involved in other things. But you very much feel, actually, you've been put in this position where you, you want to make a difference. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it just, my parents always taught me very, I had good parents, so they were like, taught me very early on when I got nervous for my first recital. Um, my mom was like, you know, you're providing a service, why are you nervous? You know, you're thinking about yourself and, you know, if you don't want to be nervous, just think about your audience and like, you know, you're, you're providing a service and, and also uh, just think service and gratitude. And so gratitude for being able to provide a service. Right. So I had that, that embedded into my mind since very early. My first recital was at a nursing home for charity. Um, I performed at a nursing home. And so and I did that a lot. And so for, you know, having that upbringing I think as a musician I, I feel not just like uh, I like I have to but like I really I really want to like I, I would never say anything I would never wear anything I would never play anything that I didn't fully believe in at the time and that's not to say that my opinion can, doesn't change you know like I learn as I grow I learn more I, I have different opinions but knowing that it could have been me in Cambodia just if I had been born to different parents that was like so traumatizing to me. It was like, you know, it's just a matter of circumstance and environment and geography and um, socioeconomics. And so like, you're just like, oh my God, that could easily be me. So I just felt like I wanted to contribute. I mean, you know, why else am I here? Just a shop? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think music has given you in your life? How much does it mean to you to have music in your life? I think that, um, Back to you know what I was just saying earlier, empathy is, is um, one of the biggest uh, things that you get out of being a musician. You just feel, and um, you know that's why I think it's so important for kids in school to like at a young age to learn. There's nothing more egalitarian than an orchestra, right? Like you know you in sports you have you know you can't really play basketball unless you're tall. Right. Like you have an advantage if you're tall football, you have to be strong soccer, you have to be fast. But with with an orchestra, with music, you'll ha you could have me sharing a stand with, you know, like an Indian American or um, like an Indian person or, or a black person or an Asian or, or a white person. It doesn't matter. It could be a 40 year old. It could be a 12 year old. We can all work together in one group. And I think that's so important for for kids to be surrounded by that. And then also just the music itself makes you feel and, and gives empathy. And I think if everyone had a little more empathy, you know, you wouldn't see the kind of human rights crisis as we're having now. So um, that's really important to me to, to um, use music education and, and to promote it in that way. More music. That's definitely the way forward, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, there's something about it that I love. Like I was saying, if I've had a, a busy day, then you can unwind to it. Or, you know, if you need a bit of invigorating, you can put a piece on that's going to liven you up. There's just so much it offers to people's lives, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, it's physiological, right? Like you can hook your body up to a machine and you hear certain pieces of music and your brain does certain things, your body does certain things, whether it's goosebumps or, you know, your heart, you're excited. Um, that's, I mean, that's, that's real. That's not just like, you know, that's like physiological facts right there. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me then what's next for you. What, what is on your kind of, you know, I don't know, a dream list of who you want to collaborate with. Are you going to be moving into any different types of music? Because I love what you're doing. It's just so fresh. It's so invigorating. It's amazing that you're taking classical music and, and bringing it to so many more people, which is just such a special thing to do. So I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. Give us a snippet of what's coming up. Well, um, I have my full album coming out, you know, next in, in the spring. 
And my, you know, my goal really is to, I want people to listen, hear my music on the radio or wherever they're hearing it and be like, oh, that sounds like Chloe Flower. Or if it's a different instrumentalist, I love this violinist based out of the UK, Esther Abrami. Oh, that sounds like Esther, you know, like I want people to hear, hear me and just recognize me through my music. And, and I think the only way to do that is to really make that instrumental music accessible and make it more, um, have them listen to it more so that they can like study, almost like study and understand it more, the exposure. Um, but definitely I want to, I want to tour. Like I would love to have a Christmas show in like Las Vegas or Radio City Hall. That's like always been a dream. I love Christmas music. I could do Christmas music all year long. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Nothing beats it, does it? A good Christmas tune. And if it came to a choice, if I said to you now, okay, Chloe, you can play either Beethoven or Beyonce, like where do your loyalties lie? Because I know they're very different, but which which world are you in? What would you choose? You mean play, perform? Yeah. Or would actually, you'd probably combine the two, wouldn't you? I you would wouldn't definitely, let that stop I'd going. be like, uh, <laughs> Chloe-once. Um, uh, <laughs> um, you mean performance-wise? Which one would I do? Yeah. I mean, like in your heart of hearts, if you were just, if I said to you, right, perform one piece now and it's either Beethoven or Beyonce. I probably would do Beyonce. <laughs> you know, it's just for right now, for where I am right now, it just is where I am right now. Uh, I love drums. I love Beyonce. I love pop culture. I love fashion. I love everything. I love dancing. And I think that being able to be alive right now with access to technology and access to audiovisual and things are much easier now than they were like even 20 years ago. I want to take advantage of that. And I can play Beethoven anytime I want in my house. I told my boyfriend, I was like, you know, if there's a blackout, you'll never be without music because I have an acoustic <laughs> piano, right? You don't need electricity. So um, I think that I would probably pick Beyonce just because, you know, I'm a pianist and so it's different. <laughs> Well, Chloe, I absolutely love your music. I can't wait to see what's coming next. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I've had such a good time. Thank you. It was brilliant speaking with Chloe. She's such a musical breath of fresh air. And if you've not seen her perform, then do go and watch a video of hers as it's so striking. Well, Chloe went for a couple of concertos for her musical choices, so I thought I'd do the same this week, and I'm listening to Elgar's Cello Concerto in E minor. Those first few notes of the first movement in particular are just so stunning. Do give it a listen. If you want to hear any of the music we've been talking about today, it's all available at the Companion playlist. Take a look at the link in the show notes. If you like what you've heard in this episode, then please do share with a friend and leave a review. It would be great if you could, as it helps the show to be discovered by new listeners. So a big thank you in advance. This podcast is produced by Renee Richardson with B. Duncan and exec produced by Chloe Murphy at Sony Classical. I'll be back next week with a new guest to discuss their last past and blast. Bye for now.